This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 443. And you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another fabulous edition of the Daniel Glass Show here only on Drummer's Resource. And I uh, hope you all are doing great. I am insanely busy. Uh, I don't know if you got my latest newsletter, which just came out a couple of days ago. Um, I've got a busy couple months coming up. Right now it's November, uh, or just beginning of November in a few days. Uh, I think I have 23 out of 30 days in November booked, and uh, maybe 22 out of 30 booked in December. A lot of stuff in New York, but also I'm going to be doing um, more and more uh, at least at this point, regional work around the East Coast, um, doing some shows with the great Gunhilde Carling from Sweden, with the amazing, marvelous Marilyn May. And actually, believe it or not, I'm doing a bunch of shows coming up with um, one of the real housewives of New York. I know this seems odd that a jazz musician would be working with a real housewife. Um, interestingly, uh, it's Luanne Delesseps. And, or Deliceps, maybe. She's very into um, cabaret, and uh, so she sort of hosts the evening, and we have a bunch of, a bevy of great Broadway stars, actors, comedians, celebrities, singers, uh, dancers. It's, it's really cool. And we've been doing these shows for a lot of this year, 2018, at 54 Below here in New York City, and they sold out so fast, and it's been going so well that now we're taking it on the road, so to speak, and so um, I have, uh, she's doing a a Christmas show, I think those are all sold out uh, in a variety of different places around New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, but then we're starting to branch out to Boston, um, Florida, and a bunch of other spots along the East Coast, so the show's really taking off, it's a fun show, Uh, definitely if you are a fan of the Housewives, um, I would highly recommend it. And uh, it's fun because it's a chance for me to sort of play in some different styles that I don't normally uh, do. Uh, She actually has some dance club hits, which I know sounds kind of scary, but we actually play them with a real band, so they've got some soul to them. And it's a lot of fun. So that's my advertisement for for this show. Um, And uh, I welcome you to go check out the gigs page at danielglass.com. Right now it's just got the November, December dates, but pretty soon I'll put up the beginning of 2019. And one last announcement, uh, I've announced the dates for the 2019 Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive, which are going to be June 7 through 10. That is a Friday through a Monday, June 7 through 10, 2019. You can go over to the Jazz Intensives page at danielglass.com for all the info. We're not, um, the registration is not open yet, but we're asking people who are interested to save the date. If you want to send me a message with your email saying, hey, I'm interested, then I will uh, hit you up when we go on sale. Uh, which will be in the early part of next year. All right, on that exciting note, what the hell are we talking about today? Well, I'd like to start today's uh, podcast going back to a clinic I saw a number of years ago featuring the one, the only, the great Bernard Purdy, 
I think I'll drop a name on the floor. Very thrilled to say that in the last few years I've become pretty good friends with Bernard, which for me is kind of like, you know, wandering through a dream, considering I've been listening to him since I was a little kid, and and he is definitely one of the, just remains one of the stupidestly funky drummers and all-around human beings. He's a lovely, lovely man um, on this planet. Uh, so it's it's a real honor and a pleasure. But I was at a clinic of his a few years ago, and somebody asked him, you know, Bernard, what what do you, what's what's the most important thing? You know, what what can you share with us about what matters about drumming? And Bernard said something that surprised me. He said, "Remember where the one is. Remember where the one is." Now, at the time, being younger and perhaps more uh, full of myself, you might say, I was like, duh, the one? What do you mean the one? Like, everyone knows where the one is. What's what's the big deal? And I went on about my, my merry way, and it wasn't until a number of years later that I began to really understand what he was talking about and how serious we have to take beat one in our travels and um, our, our mission as, as drummers. Now, if you think about it, beat one is important, right? It's the beginning of uh, any musical piece, or not any musical piece, but the vast majority of musical pieces start on one. If you're in a classical orchestra, you know, or if you're in a Broadway show or some larger ensemble that's being conducted, everybody's dependent on that conductor's hand coming down to signify where one is, and you all better be together on one. Otherwise, there's going to be big problems right from the start. Obviously, when we're counting off songs, we have to be clear on where one is. Uh, and I did t- I did address the subject a little bit in uh, several podcasts ago, uh, number 426, Playing Better Fills. But um, it, it, it really began to, you know, this, this clinic with Bernard... This guy is too deep. He can't just be throwing out beat one. It's got to mean more. So, you know, if you think about Western music, Western music is around beat one. Obviously, four beats to the bar is the most common way of feeling, or maybe two beats to the bar uh, is the most common way of feeling um, music and rhythm in in Western-based music. And... Uh, you know, that, that makes sense because we are symmetrical creatures. Two eyes, two ears, two arms, two legs. We, when we walk, we walk back and forth. So everything is in multiples of two. Uh, and how we move always is kind of a back and forth, back and forth kind of thing. So it makes sense that in creating rhythm, four seems a logical place um, to, to organize rhythms, Right four beats. And of course, of those four beats, as I said, one is key. Uh, if, if we're not demarcating the beginning of each new bar properly together and really understanding where it lives, uh, there's going to be a lot of issues. And I think, you know, I did mention this in the previous podcast, but a lot of times I think we, we can generate a beat one. We can um, we can play beat one, sure, I could play beat one, you know, beat one is in the very first groove that we learn, basic rock beat. But I think, and this is a universal issue with drummers that I go back to again and again and again, that if, you know, just because we are 
trying to hit beat one and we maybe get close doesn't mean we're really nailing beat one. And if you were to sort of graph that over a, a grid, a time grid, you know, what you would see with most drummers is sometimes they're right on it, sometimes they're a little ahead, a millisecond or two, sometimes they're behind. And it's, it's an approximation, right? It's a never really on it. And then what happens? We play a fill and we, uh, you know, we now have to negotiate all the space of a fill and come back and play one and go right from there back to the groove. And again, these approximations, we think, well, it's pretty good. I'm close enough. You know, that becomes our standard of acceptability. And therefore, we always end up, you know, or many of us end up accepting good proficiency. Yeah, I can do it versus what's really going on here? How am I really going to dig into this thing? So um, I wanted to, you know, in addition to mentioning Bernard Purdy, I want to mention another book that I really uh, enjoy. Well, let, we'll get there in a, in a second. Um, so one in, you know, and, and so obviously if we think about rock and pop music, one beat one is kind of the linchpin, right? In other words, how we, you know, begin phrases, get in and out of fills, um, in and out of sections, how we begin tempos, all those are um, reliant upon having a solid notion of beat one. And, you know, because rock music, every fill ends on beat one. So really the fill ends in the beginning of the next phrase. Uh, And I think sometimes we forget about that and we sort of think, oh, the fill is over. That's one thing. And if I'm reading music, the fill ends at the and of four, the uh of four, and now, oh, I, I got to start all over again. It's not separate things. It's one thing. So we have to negotiate and understand one in that context. And in, in, um, in uh, episode 426 here on Drummer's Resource, I really got into the nuts and bolts of really getting focused on beat one. But what about other styles of music where beat one isn't necessarily so dominant? Do we have to know about beat one there? So, um, let's take jazz. You know, now in jazz, uh, for those of you who have studied it, we don't really hit a big whopping beat one all the time, and we don't crash a big cymbal on beat one and make such a big deal out of beat one as we do in rock music. But it doesn't mean that beat one is not as important. And I want to illustrate this by talking about a couple different examples. Um, First of all, I had a student come to me once who had studied at one of the most prestigious music schools in the United States. I'm not going to name any names, don't want to make any enemies or talk any trash, but this student had said he went through the program at this school, and when it came to studying jazz, he was told by his professor that if he played four on the floor, then that wasn't jazz. And a lot of Contemporary jazz education is sort of based on this conceit that if you are playing four beats to the bar on your bass drum, for example, four on the floor, walking bass line, they're all kind of the same thing, then you are playing an old-fashioned style that modern guys don't play anymore. Um, That that is not, you know, modern jazz straight-ahead jazz, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I got so mad when I heard this, I wanted to strangle the, the teacher that had poured this crappy propaganda into the student's head. Because to me, and this ties a lot in with the way that I teach, which is to offer my students an understanding of history in addition to um, technique or simply or four-way coordination, but to understand what we're learning in a much bigger context. You know, if you think about Elvin Jones or Tony Williams, who would be considered acceptable models of straight-ahead jazz and played in a much more, you know, advanced, quote-unquote, modern way, even though they did most of their important playing in the, say, the 50s through the 70s, 60s and 70s, really. But if, you know, those guys learned how first to play a four on the floor, that is the era they came out of. So when they were developing the more contemporary style that left four on the floor behind or, uh, you know, used it less as bebop and jazz moved away from being dance music, they didn't, you know, they, they were coming out of something. And to me, it's like, if you don't, if you, if you, how can you deviate from something if you never learned that something in the first place, right? So I've talked about this a lot with my students. You must learn how to play a four on the floor if you're going to understand how not to play a four on the floor. You must still feel the four beats or have the ability to do that, to create the four beats in your various limbs, whether it's your jazz ride pattern or the two and four on the hi-hat or the four on the floor on the bass drum. Only then can you honestly deviate because you know what you're deviating from and then it makes sense what you're doing. So, you know, again, that's, that's beat one. Uh, another kind of interesting example as this relates to jazz music, uh, I recall a book that I read um, a number of years ago. It's now unfortunately out of print and difficult to find, but it's called Drum Wisdom by a fantastic Boston area drummer named Bob Moses. He, uh, his sort of biggest claim to fame is that he plays on the very first Pat Metheny record, Bright Size Life, which is one of my all-time favorite jazz records, um, if you get the chance to check it out. And Bob's, it's, it's Bob Moses, Jaco Pistorius, and Pat Metheny. And uh, I think this was recorded, you know, shortly after Pat finished his studies at, uh, at Berkeley in Boston. And so he... Um, Bob Moses is a Boston guy. He was involved with Berkeley in the Alan Dawson days. And he's since changed his name to Rock Alum. He's kind of gotten very spiritual. Um, and he's a very deep thinker. So this book, Drum Wisdom, which was written probably in the 80s at some point. I don't exactly know when. And sadly, like I said, it's out of print. Although you can, you can find PDF copies on the internet. Um, what he talks about, and it's very, very interesting. He he talks about breaking down jazz time into two-bar phrases. So there are 16 eighth notes, right? Eight, two, two bars of eight eighth notes each. And the crux of the book is that he designates how you should think about each one of those eighth notes and, um, and what their level of importance is. And I find that fascinating because I've played a lot of jazz. I've played a lot of big band. And even when you play a lot of rock, you kind of, you know what you're good at hitting, you know what some of your trouble spots are. For example, for me, 
say in my rock playing, the and of four was always tough. One, two, right? That push from the and of four where you don't really play one, and then you got to figure out how to come back in. Now, if you don't know where one is or if you have trouble with one, then if you play the and of four and stress that, where's your anchor? How are you going to get back to the end of one? And it took me a long time before, you know, I really sat down and negotiated that and figured it out. And you got to take time. You got to record yourself. You got to practice. And of course, how I talk about this with my students and um, in that uh, uh, drummer's resource episode about Phil's 426, I think it was, I, um, I, I talk about the physical choreography that you need to move through in order to have some kind of consistency when you're playing around the one, as it were. So Bob Moses in this book, uh, Jazz um, uh, Drum Wisdom, he, he actually says, and this is, this is funny because, you know, we mentioned in jazz, the one is not necessarily the most stressed beat. So maybe in the 1930s, it was stressed more as we would stress a rock beat today. But yes, in modern jazz, the one is not stressed. You don't land with a big, heavy crash on one. And very often, what you're playing are the ands of two and the and of four. So you have to do, again, a lot of work with particularly the and of two and the and of four. Um, And so, but what Bob says about one and three He says, this is, and I quote, he says, To me, the one and the three are anchors. They tend to stop forward motion, almost like putting a stake in the ground. I would call them landing points. They tend to give a feeling of reaching the end. And for that reason, I tend to use these the least of all resolution points. Ironically enough, they are the ones that almost everybody seems to be able to do. So, We come from a world where we are grounded in one and three. Those are the dominant beats. And this is why, you know, so often people have a tough time uh, feeling two and four, feeling the backbeat, clapping on two and four, uh, at least from a European-American background. That is just uh, that one and three is so ingrained in us. But as I was saying, if you cannot feel the one, then when you go to play some of these more complicated syncopations on the offbeats, Um, you're going to have a lot of trouble. You have to, and it's not, you know, as I said, it's not simply cognitively understanding where beat one is. Pretty much everybody can do that. It's truly knowing, like, that when you hit the end of four, you're also hitting the one. And this is how I teach my students as well in terms of counting. So it's like, if you're going, ding, say you're playing a shuffle and you're going to hit the end of four, ding, right? Well, what you need to feel is, you've got to sing the one, even if not one of your four limbs is playing it. You've got to still acknowledge its existence. So even amongst, you know, styles of music that are based on offbeats or ands or syncopated feels, one is still playing a huge role. It still is, as Bob Moses says, the anchor, the landing point. And although you may not play it, if you're not truly aware of how it is and how you should feel it, you're, you're going to be up the creek without the paddle, proverbially speaking, of course. Um, another style, Latin music, right? Again, you know, a lot of people get very confused trying to count Latin music or feel Latin music because it really 
doesn't land on the one. The bass player, who's playing usually what's called a montuno or some variation or tumbao, um, those 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 bass lines don't land on one, which is very confusing for the you know European or Western kind of an ear. So it's like two, three, four. Right. So again, if your definition of the one is shaky, if you're not, if your internal clock does not feel the one so strongly that you can bounce other things off of it as an anchor, you're going to run into trouble. Not only comprehending the music, listening to music, feeling the music, but obviously playing the music as well. But that said, when we write down these rhythms in Western music, we always want to notate and document, right? Maybe the African, the original African roots of of Afro uh, Latin music, which the Afro part means African because the music that we think of as salsa or Latin jazz today evolved out of the slave trade, slaves being brought from Africa. They not only were brought to North America, but they were brought to South America, Central America, the Caribbean. Uh, And all these places, their influence can be felt in the music. And much more strongly, um, at least you can feel more of an African sensibility in some of these other styles because slaves were allowed to um, practice their African uh, traditions and rituals, much more so than they were in the United States. Um, Anyway, that's another story for another podcast. But uh, in any case, so this, you know, for our, you know, Western ears, feeling that empty space on one, and even now I'm like clicking my teeth or knocking, uh, 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 right, I'm fee- I'm putting the one in there. You must feel beat one. So, you know, how do we work on this? Well, there's different ways. Again, uh, podcast four twenty six, the uh, called playing better fills. I give a lot of examples of of the choreography and ways to practice these things. And for me, you know, I'm always about on the job training. Uh, always have been because I like getting paid to play the drums and so I do practice a fair amount but I also um, uh, like to gig and a lot of times my practicing is for upcoming gigs Um, so what I used to do on long tours with Royal Crown Review was I would pick a four bar phrase in a song say during a solo or during a particular groove oriented section excuse me and I would just hit the one a lot. Now, these were shuffles, so it was not so jazzy that crashes on one were not part of the music. And I always hated the way I played the one, believe it or not. I never felt comfortable for years hitting that cymbal on one. I felt awkward the way I was moving, the way I was striking it, the way I was moving through it. Um, I just, you know, and then coming in and out of it, coming in and out of fills, ending fills, ending phrases. Um, it never felt good, never felt connected, and it didn't feel like it was dropping in at the right spot. Uh, so I, you know, even in the 90s with Royal Crown, I was working on the one a lot and thinking about the one a lot and not taking the one for granted. 
Um, and, you know, it, it really, really helped. Uh, and I began to feel more and more comfortable. And now I, it's so satisfying to hit a solid crash on one, whether I'm, you know, playing rock or jazz. But obviously in rock, that one is, is, is right there. So um, I guess that's, that's pretty much the crux of what I have to say today. I don't have a, a whole lot. It's sort of a, a, on the shorter side of this podcast. But um, I, I would encourage you all to heed Bernard Purdy's words and to really begin to develop your own relationship with Beat One. Don't take it for granted. Don't assume that just because you've been doing it since the day you picked up the drumsticks or the day you first sat down in a drum set that, you know, that you, that you really have it down and that you can't dig a lot deeper with it. And again, I encourage you to go check out that other podcast about playing fills because I talk about how Beat One is at the core. It's at the completion, the end of the fill, and simultaneously, it is the beginning of a new phrase. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of The Daniel Glass Show here on Drummer's Resource. If you'd like to be in touch, please do hit me up uh, via my Facebook page, Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. You can leave a comment in the comment section on the Drummer's Resource page or in iTunes. And uh, please do leave a review if you are enjoying this program. Have a good one and keep swinging. Keep swinging.